Matthew chapter 25, and we have come to the last portion of the Olivet Discourse. Of course, if you're just joining us this morning, if you're visiting, we welcome you. We've been studying through the Gospel of Matthew and taking pretty big chunks until we got to the Olivet Discourse. We slowed down a little bit, and this week we are ready to look at the final section, verses 31 to 46. Remember now, one of the main things that uh, is happening here in the Olivet Discourse is that Jesus is preparing his disciples for an inter-Advent age, right? We're celebrating the Advent season now that the Old Testament promise would come, the Messiah would arrive. Well, sure enough, he arrived, but he didn't do what they expected him to do in that first arrival. He didn't establish the kingdom here on earth and restore the people of Israel and rule over the nations in that sense. He did what was totally unexpected, which we'll start studying in just a couple weeks in Matthew 26. He went to the cross and suffered and died. And then in Matthew 28, he commissions his disciples, of course, to go into the world now and proclaim the good news about him as he is fulfilling his promise to build his church. And there would be this extended period of time. The disciples didn't know how long. According to Jesus' own words, he did not know how long that would be. And he's preparing them for that time. As we looked at the last couple of weeks, he does promise that he will return, that he will uh, come again in glory as the promised Son of Man and will establish his kingdom. And then what Matthew does here is share with us the teaching of Jesus in some parables and illustrations of how disciples are to wait in anticipation of that second coming. And we learned that we are to be faithful servants of the Lord, right, until he returns. We're to be ready, be watching, be prepared, all of those things, just anticipating this imminent arrival. It could happen at any time. That's what he's trained us to believe in these passages here. It could happen at any time, so be ready for it and be prepared. But in verses 31 through 46, what we see fleshed out more fully is what he's already hinted to, is that when he returns, there will be judgment. That he will come again to be king and as king judge the world. And in this passage, you have an account of the judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the world and just one aspect of that. There are many passages we could look at talk about God's judgment on this world that's coming through Jesus. But this is just one aspect of it, and we'll try to figure out what that main idea from it is as we study through it. So let's begin reading in verse 31, and we'll read through verse 46. Now when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations. He will separate people one from another as a Shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or 
thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Let's pray. Father, will you please now help us by your Spirit to understand these words, to help us be prepared for the day when we stand before Jesus. I pray that for each person in this room, apply it as only you can. Apply the truths of this passage as only you can to each and every one. Let us feel the weightiness of them. I pray that they would have the effect of changing the way we live, which is certainly the Lord Jesus' intention here. And I ask this in his name, amen. Matthew chapter 24 and 25, I'm going to reiterate some, an important point that I've made in the past before we jump, uh, jump into this judgment scene. Matthew 24 and 25 is not given to you primarily so that you can organize your end times chart. It is given to you so that you can be prepared for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is given to you to affect your life now. And as I've made mention multiple times, who cares if your end times theology is correct if it doesn't affect the way you live? Then you've missed the point of all of it. This is why Jesus is explaining to his disciples how they are to be and how they are to wait until he returns and knowing that there's a judgment coming. I want you to think about that. Knowing there's a judgment coming in which all the nations and everyone in them will stand in the presence of the risen, glorious Son of Man, King Jesus, and give an account for their life I want you to think about that for a second, how that should affect the way you live now. Standing in his presence. Here, I, here, here you're standing in his presence to give an account. You're the stewards of chapter you know, 25 in the parable right before with the, with the talents and you're going to now give an account to the Lord 
of how you invested his talents that he entrusted to you. Judgment is coming, that's clear. The whole Bible warns of this from cover to cover. Judgment is coming. The world doesn't believe it. They don't believe it. As we'll see in a few minutes, they scoff at it. They scoff at the very idea that there's a fixed day upon which the world will be judged. But friends, we believe it, right? And if we truly believe it, isn't that going to impact the way we live our life today? I mean, right now, today, knowing that one day these things will happen. You remember the assurity of all of them that Jesus said in verse 35 of chapter 24? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Meaning this, whatever I said will happen will happen, and it'll happen exactly the way I said it will happen, including the judgment. I think we need to feel the weightiness of judgment. I think we need to feel the weightiness of the reality of it and let the Spirit then work in us to make adjustments in our life where necessary. Now, let me bring out to you the main point of this judgment I think that Jesus is getting to that we will probably get to next week as we finish this up. But the main point is this. In the judgment, true disciples will be revealed. Okay? In the judgment, true disciples will be revealed, and in this case... True disciples will be those who have demonstrated love and care and concern for other disciples of Jesus Christ in their suffering. That is, there will be a demonstration in their lives of love for the disciples of Jesus, just as Jesus said. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this love, all men will know that you are my disciples. And this is a judgment that brings that out. So in other words, the way we are to be living is in uh, loving, caring service of fellow disciples of Jesus. And I'll flesh that out in more detail next week, but I wanted to give you that main point of this passage before we just kind of a little bigger picture on judgment itself, okay? In verses 31 and 32 of this passage, we see clearly that Jesus is the judge, At this point in Matthew's gospel, there shouldn't be any doubt in our minds that Jesus is the promised king and that he is the son of man, promised from Daniel's prophecy back in Daniel chapter 7, who would come and rule and reign and judge over the nations. Jesus makes it clear in the wording here that he is that judge and that's what he will do. When the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. There is real clarity in that language there so that there's no confusion. You know, one thing that we take for granted now that the Jews of Jesus' day didn't understand, even probably as they're reading Matthew's gospel, the thing that we take for granted is that Jesus is that judge. 
What they had to be instructed is that God, they knew God would judge the world, but now they see clearly that the, the judgment of the world is entrusted to the man, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. All judgment has been entrusted to him. And Matthew is pointing out to his fellow Jews this very important fact. To get into the kingdom of heaven, one must go directly through Jesus. Isn't that what we're seeing in Matthew 25 in the judgment scene? Where they want to get to the kingdom, there's a checkpoint, isn't there? It's the throne. And the one allowing entrance into that kingdom is the one sitting on that throne, and he's clearly Jesus. In order to enter into the kingdom, friends, you have to go through Jesus. He is the one with the authority to finally judge and say who goes in and who is barred forever. I mean, didn't Jesus say in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And in Matthew 25, you see that happening quite literally. You want into the kingdom, you must go through the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Paul, when preaching to Gentiles in Acts chapter 17, verse 30, 31, said this, the time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So if there was any doubt, once Jesus was raised from the dead, that doubt flees that everything he said would now come to pass because here was one who was crucified and is now alive, you see. That means we know that the day is fixed and that it is coming and that God is entrusted to this resurrected Christ, the responsibility to judge. And if you want into the kingdom of heaven where there is everlasting joy, then you must go through him. John 5, verses 22 to 23, Jesus said, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Why? That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. See, this is the problem that Jesus was experiencing among the Jewish people. They claimed to have the Father, and they believed they were on the way to the kingdom, but they were rejecting the Son. And Jesus says, You can't have the Father unless you go through me. You can't have the kingdom unless you go through me. Whoever rejects me goes away, as Jesus says here, into eternal punishment. Whoever receives me goes into everlasting joy. That's the point. You want into the kingdom? You have to go through Jesus. You know, I once had a conversation with one of Calista's friends' dads, and we were kind of just walking along talking, and he said he was a Christian and we were talking a little bit about the gospel and such. And I think I shared with him uh, the gospel message as what I believed and embraced. He said, you know, I believe that, but I also believe that all well-intentioned Jews and Muslims go to heaven as well. Because after all, God is love and they're trying. They're trying their best. But friends, what we see here is that's not even possible is it for one to get into the kingdom the message is clear they must go through Jesus Christ no one's getting the father no one's getting the kingdom apart from him 
This is why it's so important to even read what we read this morning from John the Baptist. You better repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand and the only salvation that you can have and fleeing of the wrath to come and eternal condemnation is to trust in the king now. Embrace the king. Remember Psalm 2? Kiss the son, right? Embrace him. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. That's the idea. And that means we can draw this conclusion. Since Jesus is the judge and he determines the eternal position for each person, then that means that your relationship to Jesus now is the most important aspect of your life. It's your priority. It's essentially, friends, if we boiled it down, it's all that matters. Where you are with Christ Jesus is all that matters. You know, I was thinking about this in reference to young people. We, we need to raise young people that Christ is infinitely and eternally more important than career. Didn't Jesus ask the very question in Matthew, Matthew's gospel? What would it profit a man if he were to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What would a man, ask Jesus, give in exchange for his soul? His questions were so pointed and got you thinking. I wouldn't give anything for my eternal soul, trading it in for the things of this world. But young people, you know, if you reject Christ and you go into this world and you pursue it, that's exactly what you're doing. You're trading in your eternal soul for temporary pleasures. And some fun you'll find wasn't really that fun anyway. And some things that give you some temporal happiness that you find aren't making you very happy anyway. Your relationship to Christ is all that matters. It's the only thing really of eternal significance. We focus on that. This is why Jesus said, and seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these other things of life will be added unto you. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness spoken by the one who will be tasked with, knowing he will be tasked with sending those who rejected him into eternal condemnation. Maybe he said it a little more like this. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And don't get wrapped up in the things of this world. Maybe he said it more intense with great concern and love for those who won't listen to him. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if you want into the kingdom of heaven, you have to go through the king. Now I want you to notice in verse 32 the summons the summons of this judgment scene. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now what is clear, I think, my interpretation of this passage is that all the nations means that, all the nations including every single person in them. All people. It's another way of saying just everyone. 
appears before him. And what you have clearly are saved and unsaved, right? Because in the end, we see there are sheep and there are goats. And the sheep went out into the kingdom and the goats were put out. So we have everyone standing here. Like, there's no exception. Everyone has to go through this. And what is quite startling to me in both this judgment scene and also the one we've already seen a little glimpse of back in Matthew chapter 7. Actually, let's look at it. Matthew chapter 7. This, of course, is Sermon on the Mount. And in verse 21 of Matthew 7, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, listen to this, on that day, many will say to me, this will be a common refrain among those before the throne. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I, will I declare to them, I never knew you. Apart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You know what's startling in both of these passages is that it appears as though some that are barred from the kingdom of heaven thought they were going into it. Which opens up the possibility and probability that within every local congregation there are people in that condition they think for one reason or another, and we could probably name, you know, a hundred reasons, they think they're on their way to the kingdom, and they're not. Friends, isn't that sobering? Do you think maybe Jesus intends that to be very sobering? So that each and every one of us would do what? We will pause, we will think, we will pray, and we will ask. Lord, am I a sheep? I want to be assured of this. Right? We don't want to miss this one. If we're all going to stand before him and there's no way getting in unless he grants us access and our relationship to him is the key, we don't want to mess this up. I want to know, and that's exactly the point. If you're asking Father, through your spirit, show me whether I'm a true child of God or not. That's an okay thing to pray. It's a good thing to pray, to settle this now. And young people, let me direct this at you again. That growing up in a Christian home does not qualify you for the kingdom of heaven. Nor does going to church or joining a church or being baptized. None of these things qualify you for the kingdom of heaven. You need to prepare yourself for the kingdom because see in this summons, every person will give an account for himself. Every person will stand and give an account for his, himself or herself. This is an individual thing, isn't it? You don't get to stand with your parents in the judgment. The Bible is very, very gracious to warn us about the judgment. Very gracious. Whenever the Bible warns you of judgment, it is God's grace to you. Because always in the reminder of judgment, 
is a call to repent, to trust in Christ so that you can pass through the judgment. That's God's grace. Do you know that God wasn't obligated to save anyone? I wonder if you've ever thought about that. He was under no personal obligation to save any sinner. And actually would have been just and righteous and fully God and not changed of his character at all if he hadn't warned anyone about the coming judgment. But because he's gracious, he warns us over and over again in the Bible. You know, I, I read about four chapters a day for my devotional time in different portions of the scriptures. And I can't tell you how many times, if you do that and you read through the Bible in about a year, how many passages you go through warning of God's judgment for sin. It just amplifies his grace. Just how gracious he is. And how much he, he desires to save sinners. You can't help but see it. Jesus' message is, man, when he talked about judgment, it's almost like as a preacher, he's talking about you know, people getting cut in half and thrown into eternal punishment and cast out forever and there's going to be weeping. And ash. Sometimes preachers blush to, to talk about it. But Jesus wants you to read that and to hear that, to take that very seriously because it's true. Heaven and earth, he says, will pass away. My words will not pass away. There will be people who called me Lord on earth who will be put out forever. There will be people now within churches who think they're on the way to the kingdom and they're not. That's why I have to say it to you. I have to say it to me so we can reflect on this and make sure this is settled in our minds and hearts that we are in Christ Jesus. So we're ready for the judgment. But not only that, the Bible is gracious to tell us about judgments like this one in Matthew chapter 5 so that we as Christians, now we've come to the point where we're sure now, I'm sure I'm in Christ, okay? And that there is no condemnation to me, Romans 8:1, because I'm in Christ. So we've come to that point. But it's gracious now to warn us of this coming judgment so that we can make adjustments in our life now, prepared to see Jesus and be ready to see him and actually have a certain level of humble confidence when we face him about how we have invested his talents. Oh, we can be like those in the, and they're bringing to them the talents they've, they've uh, multiplied and saying, here they are, the talents you gave me plus more. I've borne fruit. Did you know you can do that? Did you know one of the purposes of Jesus' warnings about judgment is so that Christian people could live their lives in such a way so that when he appears and you stand before him in judgment, you can have a humble confidence in the way you've lived your life. As a matter of fact, Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he's at the end of his life and he knows it. So he's in prison for the second time and he knows he's not getting out this time. They're going to put him to death. And he writes to Timothy, and listen to this humble confidence. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Can you see that? You can live, the Bible tells you about the judgment that comes to so you. You can live your life in such a way now in service to King Jesus 
that when he returns, you can stand before him in humble confidence. Paul would admit, I haven't been perfect. Paul would admit he hasn't been free from sin. He's failed at times, but his life could be characterized as a good and faithful servant as he analyzed himself and took stock of the way he lived and how he served the Lord Jesus, he had a humble confidence that he would hear those treasured words from any true believer, well done, thou good and faithful servant, you see. That's what we are wanting, and the Bible tells us about the coming judgment and that even Christians will stand in judgment for Jesus so that we can be prepared for those moments to organize our life now in such a way that we are living in light of the judgment. Do you ever wake up in the, in the morning and think to yourself, I will give an account for this day. I've been entrusted with talents today to invest for the kingdom. Man, that makes time really valuable. And I think even for myself, I had to sit and evaluate the way I spend my time. And I came away thinking what Paul says in one of his letters, redeem the time. What's that mean? Buy it back. Where you're investing your time in things that don't matter. And I'm not saying that we can't have some downtime, we don't have some entertainments and such. But it is funny how all of those things tend to creep in and take control and become the predominant right? The predominant use of our time. Instead of thinking to myself, I'm going to give an account of my time to Jesus, and I want to be a good and faithful servant by his grace and spirit that works within me. He warns us so that we can be ready for his coming judgment. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 11, Paul says this, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Why, Paul? Well, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. He lives his whole life with the thought that he's going to have to appear before the Lord. And so he makes it his aim, his goal, to please him in all things. That's a good goal to have. Every day. That means, friends, we do need to spend time in self-reflection and reflection upon our lives, our relationships, the way we invest our time, the way we spend our Sundays. We need to spend, we need to spend some time just analyzing, am I making it my aim? Am I really making it my aim in the moments of my day to bring pleasure to King Jesus? I don't think this needs to promote within us this, uh, oh, I don't know, paranoia where we lose the joy of grace and the joy of God's love on us. But I do think it promotes a conscientious Christian living, a careful Christian living, in which we really think about how we're living and what we're doing. I think that's what it promotes. You know, this judgment of Jesus is so piercing. This struck me. Matthew 12, 36 says, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Anyone in here 
guilty of speaking a careless word. Conscientious Christian living, right down to our attitudes, our emotions, our thoughts, and our words. I make it my aim to please Him because I'm going to stand before Him. We must all stand before Him. We make it our aim in every area of life to please Him. Careful Christian living. Now here's what I want to do. I want to do two more things this morning. I want you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. I want to make a connection here. In 2 Peter to... uh, the Olivet Discourse, and in this same vein of how we live. Second Peter chapter 3. Now, if you're using one of our Bibles that are provided, that's going to be on page 1300. 1300 or Second Peter 3. Peter says this, chapter 3, verse 1. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them... I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Pause right there for a moment and understand in Peter's mind when he uses the term last days, He's referring to the whole time of the Advent age. Yet every, anticipa- every ex- expectation that he was in the last days, we are. Okay. And he's saying that there are people that will come along and begin scoffing because they want to continue in their own sinful desires. They're going to scoff at the fact of what we're looking at in Matthew 25, that Jesus will return and judge. And they're doing that because they just want to live in their sin and don't want to be held accountable for it. They want no God to be held accountable for. This is why evolution is a gospel. It is good news to people. There is no God and there is no judgment. Therefore, live any way you want to live now. That's why it spreads like wildfire. People want to believe that. There is no God to whom we are accountable scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, here's their scoffing, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. What he's saying here is these people are refusing to acknowledge the flood of Genesis. That God promised then judgment and he sent it. Remember what Jesus said? That the days of his return will be like the days of Noah. They won't expect it. They're going to be going about their business, their everyday business, scoffing that any judgment's coming, and then all of a sudden the judge comes in, judgment comes in like a flood, you see. That's exactly what he's pointing out here. Verse 7, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. That's exactly what Jesus said. 
Now he's just, he's just like expounding on the Olivet Discourse for you. He's exactly what Jesus said, that it's going to be like that in these days. They're going to scoff, they're going to say it's not happening, and then the flood of judgment and fire is coming. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. In other words, God doesn't judge time the way we do. Time is his creation. And we say, it's been 2,000 years. Well, that's a long time. Not to an eternal God, it's not. Besides that, look at verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He has a gracious purpose in this, doesn't he? He wants people to repent. He wants people to come to faith in Christ. He wants people to be saved. It's a delay of grace. It's a desire of God's to keep building the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Such a gracious God. But again, he'll reflect on Jesus' teaching. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, just like Jesus said. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. There's the judgment. But now let's get to the conclusion. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved in judgment, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming day of God? You see how he takes it and he directly applies it into your life and he says this, since we believe all that Jesus has said and we believe all that Peter has expounded on about this coming judgment, then what implication does that have for me? Well, then I am to be a person who lives a holy and godly life. I am a person who makes it my aim then to please him knowing that all this is going to happen. And the reference to all things being dissolved by fire is really interesting because that means all these things we possess that we put so much stock and weight into and that some people just live for just to get some things more and more money to buy more things, all of it's going to be dissolved. So what it should be the attitude of a Christian to things like that? These are all going to burn. In the internal scheme of things, they're useless and worthless. We hold them loosely then, right? And we certainly don't live for them. God is gracious, is he not, to warn us about this coming judgment so that we can live lives preparing to see him, preparing to be with him? I'd like to close by leaving you uh, with a quote from a sermon that was preached by John Piper way back in May of 2000. This is probably, this was one of the first sermons to ever go viral on YouTube, just so you know. And he preached it at the Passion Conference. He goes to the Passion Conference every year and uh, preaches to thousands of college students. They all gather together, and of course they have music and preaching, and for some reason they asked John Piper to come to that. He doesn't seem to fit But this was a very influential sermon to a lot of people. I made my kids and family, as we were driving back from Denver just a couple months ago, listen to this sermon. But I'm going to read to you the introduction part. 
You don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world. But you do have to know the few great things that matter and then be willing to live for them and die for them. The people that make a durable difference in the world are not the people who have mastered many things but who have been mastered by a few great things. If you want your life to count... If you want the ripple effect of the pebbles you drop to become waves that reach the ends of the earth and roll on for centuries and into eternity, you don't have to have a high IQ or a high EQ. You don't have to have good looks or riches. You don't have to come from a fine family or a fine school. You just have to know a few great, majestic, unchanging, obvious, simple, glorious things and be set on fire by them. But I know that not everybody in this crowd wants their life to make a difference. There are hundreds of you. You don't care whether you make a lasting difference for something great. You just want people to like you. If people would just like you, you'd be satisfied. Or if you could just have a good job with a good wife and a couple good kids and a nice car and long weekends and a few good friends, a fun retirement, a quick and easy death and no hell, if you could have that, you'd be satisfied even without God. That is a tragedy in the making. Three weeks ago, he said, and I continue with the quote here, we got word at our church that Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards had both been killed in Cameroon. They were supported missionaries of his church. Ruby was over 80, single all her life. She poured it out for one great thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the unreached, the poor, and the sick. Laura was a widow, a medical doctor pushing 80 years old and serving at Ruby's side in Cameroon. The brakes gave way, over the cliff they went, and they're gone, killed instantly. And I asked my people, was that a tragedy? Two lives driven by one great vision, spent in unheralded service to the perishing poor for the glory of Jesus Christ, two decades after almost all their American counterparts have retired to throw their lives away on trifles in Florida or New Mexico. No, that is not a tragedy. That is a glory. I tell you what a tragedy is. I'll read to you from Reader's Digest what a tragedy is. It's quoting here from Reader's Digest. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler playing softball and collecting shells. That's a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. And I get 40 minutes, he said, to plead with you, don't buy it. With all my heart, I plead with you, don't buy that dream. The American dream, a nice house, a nice car, a nice job, a nice family, a nice retirement. Collecting shells, listen to this, as the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account of what you did. Here it is, Lord, my shell collection. And I've got a nice swing. And look at my boat. Don't waste your life. Don't waste it. Let's pray. Father, I pray that by your Spirit you would work in us the realities of these truths that we read. We often give intellectual assent to them. 
but how infrequently they affect our daily lives. I pray that we would not be people who would waste our lives. I pray that everyone in this room, including myself, would have the grace and the power of the Spirit, His daily renewal, to wake up each and every day in service to King Jesus and to be a good and faithful servant. And we ask this in His name. Amen.